along with welcoming Clara uh, to the planet and into our family, we also want to welcome Isaiah, not to the planet, uh, but into our family. Uh, As Christians, we all are adopted into the family of God, and so we should love and support adoption because it is a beautiful picture of how we who once were outside the family were adopted in with all the fullness of it. And so no longer now are we adopted. We're just children of God. And so we rejoice as they welcome in uh, a new child into their family, into our family. Uh, and as we pray with them and hope with them that, that Isaiah will come into the fullness of his name and the fullness of the truth that is found in Christ Jesus. Um, So we are thankful for that. And before we really get going, let me just say this. The text this morning is long. I mean, it's it's really, really long. Um, It's so long that to go through it in its entirety, particularly with me preaching, could take days. Uh, And so we're not going to, um, and that's okay. We're going to look at the overarching story. We're going to narrow in on some specific points in that story, some specific parts of the story. Uh, We're going to draw some conclusions from them, uh, and and we'll go about our way. And so to that end, we're not even going to see the text on the screen. I know that's unusual, but hopefully we have not trained you out of having a Bible. (laughs) So uh, I hope that you've brought your Bibles. If not, we've been talking about family, so it's time to family up and get close to someone who does have a Bible or um, uh, some sort of electronic device with the Bible on it. Um, Part of the reason that we're doing this, though, is because this whole passage, and so we're covering from uh, Genesis 30, 25, through the end of 31, which is 55 uh, verses long, chapter 31. So it's, it's a lot of verses. The reason we're doing that is that that whole passage is one succinct story, one succinct text, but it's got three distinct parts to it and no real overarching theme, which makes it really difficult for me because that's what I love is one theme. Let's sit in on this. And let's go in. Uh, But it doesn't really have one overarching theme. I I will say this, that last week uh, with Brad, uh, we saw Jacob enter into the land of Laban. And he did it with no wives, no children, and moderate wealth. And by the end of this week, uh, by the end of our passage through a series of just outlandish events, what we're going to see is that Jacob will leave Laban with two wives, two extra baby mamas, Twelve children at this point, and a whole bunch of money. I mean, just filthy rich. And so for, for that uh, reason, we're just going to title the sermon, The God Who Prospers His People. Now, because of how the story goes, I actually had a different sermon title, but it was a little bit wordy. Um, so it's The God Who Prospers His People, or... The God who reveals truth to whomever he sees fit, however he sees fit, and takes pleasure in using even the most ridiculous and conniving plots of man to demonstrate his power over life, prosperity, freedom, and family in order to keep his covenant for our joy and redemption and for his glory. Forever and ever, amen. But we're talking about the God who prospers his people. And so let me just say this. When a lot of people, when many people in uh, conservative, evangelical, even more reformed traditions and circles and tribes hear that term prosper or prosperity in any sort of connection with the gospel, red flags go up in our heads. And for good reason. Uh, The prosperity gospel that has become so prevalent in our country through the likes of Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer. It's not only off, 
It's deadly. It's deadly. Right? And so you can't go into a Christian bookstore in our country today and not be faced with this. Your best life now. Seven steps to immeasurable joy today. God wants you wealthy, happy, whole right now. It's an industry. I mean, it really is. These guys, we can keep going. Eddie Long, these guys have multi-million dollar estates, multi-million dollar jets. They are raking in billions of dollars on a yearly basis because it's an industry. And it's not a good, wholesome one. They didn't happen to get rich speaking the truth. They are lying and their lies will kill you. And so you are right when a red flag comes up in your head. And let me, let me explain why. Because you may say, I like Joyce Meyer. I like Joel Osteen. They say nice, positive things. I can retweet it or post it on Facebook. And it'll make people happy. And it's a good way to get me kickstarted for the day. But let me explain to you what the prosperity gospel does. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you are a faithful enough Christian, that God will bless you with health, wealth, good relationships, advancement in work and in life. And what it does is it, it turns God into a means to an end. Do you see what I'm saying? I go to God for something. I go to God for wealth. I go to God for health, for a good relationship, for a good family. And then what it does, because it turns God into a means to an end, it turns good, faithful, obedient Christian acts into works of idolatry. Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, they don't say explicit heresy. They don't. There's never a point where Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer is going to say, Jesus wasn't really the son of God, or he didn't really raise up from the dead bodily. And so these are things that we would call heresy. And so I I was very careful not to use the term heretic, because heresy is involving who the person of God is, who the person of Jesus is, and They haven't profaned that, but here's what has happened. And I I can work through it biblically. The easiest way to do that will actually be to get through this text and to explain it to you. Uh, But what has happened is that they have said to people that God wants to make you happy, healthy, whole now. However, they say that the object of your faith, the object of your faith, the hope of your faith, is in being happy, healthy, and whole. They may not say that explicitly, but it's, it's caught and it's taught. And so what happens is people approach it and they say, when I go to God and I believe in faith, he will heal me. Sometimes that happens. It happened a lot in the book of Acts. A lot. We believe that by the power of the Spirit, God heals sick people. And we also believe that in his divine providence, God allows people to die. And so when a person who has been prayed for by a faithful person dies, what that does not mean is that the faithful prayer did not have enough faith. It meant that God, who was sovereign over sickness, life, and death, over prosperity, over freedom, over family, chose in his goodness and his mercy differently from what the faithful prayer prayed. And on top of that, what we do see is that that sick person who was prayed for actually was made whole if they're in Christ. And see, this is the beauty of it. Um, I'm going to use Linda. I have to. I I love her and I miss her. And and it's the perfect example. Uh, Several years ago, uh, our pastor's first wife, Linda, was sick with a brain tumor. And we prayed faithfully. And fervently as a church. And she died. And in that moment she breathed her last breath. She was the most whole that she has ever been. And so we rejoice that God answered that prayer. God will make you whole. That's actually the last point. We can almost wrap up. But God will make you whole. But see here's the thing. Is when you 
use God to get happy, when you use God to get money, when you use God to get anything, the object of your desire is the thing that you want God to give you, not God himself. And so, and so what the Bible teaches us is that that's an idol. It's not always an idol, but many times this is what happens. All right? And so here's what we'll do because we need to get through this text. And perhaps when we get through the text, those of you who have objections um, will see the fullness of what I'm saying. And if not, you can come talk to me. I'm very fine with that. But for the sake of everything as a whole, we have to get through this text. The point is that, that the God who prospers his people does it in a specific way, and we'll see how in the text. And so we're going to be in Genesis 40. And if you will, turn with me to Genesis 40. And if at the end of it you don't see it, so be it. All right, so as we said, last week we ended the sermon with Jacob now having gone from no wives to two wives, two maidservants who've had children for him, uh, 12 children as of now. Benjamin is not mentioned in uh, the previous week. And so we've got Dinah and 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob that have been born. And he decides that now it's time to go. It's time to leave. In chapter 30, verse 25, We see this, that as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go home to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given to you. And so let's give you some subtext here. Laban has taken advantage of Jacob in every way possible. We're going to see it later. Jacob will just outright say it to his wife, Rachel. Jacob has been taken advantage of by Laban. And so at this point, he's got his wife, he's got his children, he got what he came for, he has to go. And so he comes to Laban and he says it, and Laban says this, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And I want to stop and make a brief aside here. Because this doesn't really make sense. Laban has learned through divination that God is blessing him because of Jacob. Well, we're going to learn in about two books that God despises divination. He forbids it. Divination is and was More was, it's considered a little bit differently in the New Testament on, but it was the using of false gods and wrong spirits to discern what may happen or why something is happening. And so this picture that we get is that Laban says, I've learned through my gods and through my spirituality that God has blessed me because of you. Now, here's the thing. Laban's absolutely right. God blessed Laban because of Jacob. However, however, he comes to this conclusion in the completely wrong way. God reveals truth to people however he sees fit. And so we have to talk about how God reveals truth a little bit, right? Like he, he, he reveals it through nature. He reveals it through scripture. He reveals it through people stumbling upon it. It's grace. It's common grace. And God reveals it to all people. And then we have to push a little bit further and say, well, what's the difference between truth and saving truth? Because we might be tempted to look at Laban and say, well, he got this one thing right. Does he know God? I mean, he's hearing from the Lord. The answer is no. We'll find it out later. He worships idols. He's pagan. 
And yet God reveals to him truth, not outside of his sin, but through the very sin, very false God that he worships. God reveals to him a bit of truth that Jacob has blessed him. And it reminds me of being in middle school and high school all over again. Um, high school math classes, middle school math classes, you would take a test and it'd be algebra. And in algebra, you'd have a question. You'd have a problem. X times 2 equals 4. And my thing is, I know what the answer is. It's 2. X equals 2. Right? Let's go. Let's put it down. Boom. I put it down on the test. I get it back. Half credit. Why? Because I didn't show my work. I've got a math teacher here who's nodding emphatically. You must show your work. And here's why. Because sometimes when we show our work, it shows us why we got the answer wrong. And so we, sh- we, we get an X times 2 equals 4. We put X equals 3. We can go back and see I did the wrong thing and I got the wrong answer. But sometimes we luck into, we bumble into the right answer, and showing your work helps correct that. Because it just so happens that if I subtract two instead of dividing two from both sides, I'll get the right answer. I'll get x equals two, but I'll have done it the right way. If you're not a math person, just tune it out, just trust me. Of the math teachers, the science teachers, they're nodding correctly. It turns out 4 divided by 2 and 4 minus 2 are the same thing. It's 2. However, if I use that same process for a different equation, I'm going to get it wrong because I didn't divide. I subtracted. And so the Bible does us a favor and it shows us Laban's work. He got the right answer, but he got there the wrong way. And so what's the problem with that? The problem is it's good for you now, but as we'll see, it does Laban no good later because he got there through false gods. That's just Laban. And so Laban says, look, God has found favor for me because of you. So name your wages and I will give it. And now, here again, Laban is trying to trick Joseph. We talked about it last week. Laban was usurping the usurper. He was tricking the trickster. And again, he's trying to. This is telling us the character of Laban and we have to see it. Laban is not doing this for the good of Jacob. Laban is not doing this for the good of his two daughters who he gave to Jacob. Laban is not doing this for the good of his 12 grandchildren. Laban is doing this for himself. Because he loves wealth. He loves his sheep and his goat, his livestock. He didn't love Jacob because of the goodness of Jacob. He loved Jacob because he saw that for whatever reason, the more Jacob was working for him, the more he got wealthy. And that really leads me to another couple of sides. And there are probably more sides in this than there are main points, but we're just going to go with it. The first aside is this, that Laban recognizes that I am rich and God has blessed me because of you. And I am forced to confront us as Christians in the workplace. Look, the first point is that God prospers his people by meeting their needs. But as Christians in the workplace, or as Christians today, what we need to know is that the primary way by which God meets our needs is ordinary, and it's through work. And for a second, if you're in my generation and younger, so we'll say 40 and younger, you really need to hear this. And if you're 40 and older and you feel like saying amen so as to beat us down with the word of truth, then by all means. Um, But if you were to talk to 
maybe your parents, probably your parents, and definitely your grandparents, you would find that a large percent of them worked jobs that they did not like. And that were not personally fulfilling to them. And when I say personally fulfilling, I mean they didn't get good feelings inside every time they woke up at some crazy hour in the morning and drove to work. But they drove to work. Why? Because God calls us to work. If you are a man, God calls you to work to provide for your family. If you are in need, the primary way that God provides for our needs is through us working and working like he is our boss because guess what? He is. And so if you have a boss that you don't particularly like, you work. If you have a boss that is clearly trying to swindle you at every point in time, you work as unto the Lord. We live in a culture that is so fat off entitlements And off of this desire to just be happy all the time and to do what I want all the time, that people in my generation, my generation, they don't keep jobs more than a year or two. They bounce from job to job. They don't settle in on a job. We don't like to work because we think that at every moment that we're working, we should be happy. And if we're not happy in it, then we don't want to work. Shame on us as Christians, young Christians, if we believe that and if we live by that. You may not be happy, but God has given you work as a good thing to meet your needs and the needs of your family and to honor him. Work so as to honor him. We could talk to the older generation and some in mind about the need to rest faithfully in God. But for the most part, we've got the rest part down. Um, it's the actually working. The actually working that we need. So work hard. Work diligently. Work faithfully. And watch as God meets your needs through the ordinary means. Secondly, I debated whether to talk about this. Be very careful. Very careful. And some of you are in this situation. Some of you are on the other side of this situation. I'm not making any statements about right or wrong here. I'm just making some cautions from the life of Jacob. Be very careful when working with your family. Because when it's good, it's good. When it's not, it's not. (laughs) And so now Jacob and Laban find themselves in this not too unusual place where Jacob is ready to move on. Laban is ready to keep getting money. And so Laban now acts out of his best interest instead of the best interest of his daughters and his grandchildren, of his son-in-law. And he's trying to trick Jacob. And so Jacob responds now at this point, name your wages, because what Laban knows is what Jacob knows. And and we'll explain what Jacob knows by how he responds. Uh, You yourself know that I've served you, Jacob says in verse 29, and how your livestock have fared with me, for you had little before I came, and increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned, but now... When shall I provide for my own household also? This is actually a great question for Jacob to ask. How should I provide for my own household? It is a question that understands that God has given us responsibility, especially us husbands and men. And he said, Laban, to Jacob, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you'll do this for me. I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flock today, removing from it speckled, spotted, and every, uh, speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So honest, honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled, spotted among the goats, black among the lambs, if it is found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. 
And here's why Laban is okay with this. is because he thinks that it's going to work into his advantage. The spotted, speckled uh, goats, the black sheep, they're, they're not the plenty in the group. They're the rarities. And so in this way, Laban is thinking, this joker is actually bargaining down with me. But what Jacob knows is sort of a variation on that, that old saying, if you give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. If you teach him to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. But this is more like, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. But if he takes a lake, then he can fish as much as he wants, right? He's just, he wants he wants livestock because livestock has this funny way of making more livestock. He doesn't just want for now. He wants for the future for his family. And I have had a hard time with the concept of saving, of planning for the future. Those who know me know it well. My wife is silently saying amen. But it is not wrong or unfaithful to consider the future, especially when in regards to your family. It is wise. So Jacob makes a wise request. Like I said, or like has been said, like David said initially, we've heard, Jacob isn't the hero of the story, God is, so don't be like Jacob. Because look at what Jacob does. So Laban says, and I'll just sum it up. Laban says, good deal. All right. Quick, before you realize what you've done, go and let it be so. And so then Laban goes to his sons and says, I, I want you to pull back all the spotted, all the black sheep. We're going we're gonna to get this guy again. I want you to pull it far away. Go protect it so that when he comes, none of the sheep are spotted, speckled, black. He is working hard against his son-in-law. And so Jacob comes and he sees what's happened. And he sees that there's now three days between him and what Laban has promised him. And so he comes up with a great idea. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take fresh sticks of poplar. This is verse 37. And almond and plane trees. And, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He that set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs that... That is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock toward the stripe. And all the black in the flock of Laban, he put down his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before them, before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger would be Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. So what in the world is Jacob doing here? Let me first say this, preface it like this. God didn't tell Jacob to do this. This was Jacob's choice, and this is Jacob's nature coming out again. He is a deceiver too. So he said, I've got a great idea. I am going to ensure that the strongest and the best of Laban's flock will, be, will breed those that will be mine that the feebler won't. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to strip wood sticks and put it where they breed. Why did he do that? Because he lived in the ancient Near East. And it's an old wives' tale. There's actually no science to this at all. And as Christians, we know that we don't need science. We need God. However, there was just a wives' tale, an old belief that if you would strip the sticks and so that they were blemished or spotted or striped and you would stick them in in front of breeding animals, that the offspring they had would then match the sticks because that's what the animals were focusing on or seeing while they were 
making more animals. That was his logic. Craziest thing happens. It works. God blesses him. God blesses him. And it works. Why? Because God has made a promise. He made a promise in chapter 28 to Jacob that when he went into the land of Laban, he would find what he was looking for and that he would be blessed. He made a promise to Jacob, just like he made to Abraham, that you'll be the father of many nations. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. And so God prospers him because he promised him he would. And for his own glory and for his own good. And so he meets the needs of Jacob. Moving on now. So God prospers his people by meeting their needs. Secondly, God prospers his people by protecting them. And so this is all of chapter 31. But specifically in a few places. So what happens now is Jacob hits the jackpot. God blesses him with all of this stuff. And he realizes it's time to go. And so God says to him in verse 3, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. We'll come back to that last part of that um, in a moment. Return to the land of your kindred, of your fathers. Go. And Jacob realizes that if I say, Hey, Laban, I'm going to go. I'm just going to take everything <laughs> and go. Everything good that, that, that's in your fields, I'm going to take it and go. That Laban's going to say, no, let's renegotiate this. And so he goes to his wives and he goes to all his people. And without telling Laban, he says, it's time to go. Like, get up, let's go, let's go, let's go. Don't brush your teeth. We'll brush your teeth on the way there. Don't worry about makeup. We're just going to another land. You don't have to, just let's go. And so they get up and go. And Laban finds out that he's been cheated. He's angry. He's been cheated out of livestock. He's been cheated out of the chance to say goodbye, potentially, to his daughters and his grandchildren. He's not happy. And not only that, in the middle of this story, we see that Leah, Leah, Nope. We see that Rachel, apologies. We see that Rachel goes to Laban's home, steals all of Laban's idols. Remember I said we'd see later on how pagan Laban was? He had idols in his home. But not only that, he taught his daughters to love those idols. So Rachel steals the idols. And they go. So now Laban's mad because you stole my gods. You stole my wealth. You stole my daughters and my grandchildren. And so he sets out after Jacob. In verse 22, when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob and fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And so now here, in an attempt to protect Jacob, and as a part of his protection for Jacob, God directly visits an unbelieving person, a pagan, an idol worshiper. And God says to him, be careful what you do with Jacob. Why? Because he belongs to me. And so now Laban has to think twice because He found out through divination, he knows through what Jacob has done, that this God actually gets things done. 
so I might be wise to heed what he says. And in verse 51, we see that he does because Laban catches up to Jacob. And he says, why have you stolen everything from me, including my gods? And Jacob says, whoa, I haven't done anything like that. Go, look, see. And so Laban is looking, knowing that whoever he finds the gods with, he's going to kill. And the Bible says that Rachel is just sitting on top of the gods, (laughs) on top of these idols, when Laban walks in the room and she lies and says, Aunt Flo is here. And Laban says, okay, don't. <laughs> I'll just, goodbye, you know, like, like every father likely will. Oh, that, talk to your mom. Um, <laughs> it works, <laughs> is the point. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> it works. And even in that, even through Rachel's deceit, not even deceit, just her bold-faced lie, God protects them. I would say this to you, that Jacob is conniving and lying. Rachel is lying and stealing. And all of these things, are indications that their trust is not fully in God. God blesses them anyway because they're his people. He protects them anyway because they're his people. Because he is a God who keeps his word for his glory. So then in verse 51, after Laban has not found anything and Jacob has essentially just berated, not essentially, that's what the Bible says, Jacob berates Laban. Laban becomes afraid because now he thinks maybe Jacob is going to kill me. And so in his fear, he wants to covenant with Jacob. And so in 51, Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and this pillar? which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, that's Yahweh, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country, and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Another brief aside. Family conflict comes. It does. Forgiveness and restoration and redemption looks different for every situation. But it is always better. Always. Look, they're not leaving on happy terms here. It's not like hugs and high fives and fist bumps. They actually leave on this. Hey, you don't cross this and I won't kill you. I don't cross this, you don't kill me and we're good. All right, we're good. All right, thank you. Go on your way. You can hug your grandchildren, and I won't see you later. But there's closure. And it's hard. Not in this scene are Leah and Rachel. It's hard. Conflict in the family is hard. But God protects his people through it. So we see that God has prospered Jacob by protecting him from Laban and in many ways from by protecting him from himself. 
Then finally, God prospers his people by giving them himself. That's where I said we'd come back to verse 3. This is the whole of it. I know it's one little bit of a little verse, but God speaks to Jacob. The Lord, Yahweh, speaks to Jacob and says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now at this point, if Jacob went empty-handed and and was like Job and his possessions had been destroyed and his Family had been killed, and the Lord said to him, Now go back empty-handed and beat down, and I will be with you. Then Jacob would have had all that he needed. If you were here with us, if you've been with us for a while, you'll remember we went through Galatians, and the basic tag when we went through Galatians was this, that Jesus plus nothing equals Everything. Yahweh plus nothing equals everything. All that we have and could ever need is in God, is in Christ Jesus. It's in Him. Which means then that Jesus plus everything is nothing. God's ultimate and primary way of prospering his people, of blessing his people, is with his presence. Laban is a rich man, but he does not have the Lord with him. So he is poor. Right? This is the letter to the church in Revelation 3. Woe to you, you are rich. And you say to yourself, I am rich. I have lots of good things. You know what you don't have? My spirit. And so you are more in poverty than anyone. The child in Africa who is starving and trusts in the Lord, or the family in Appalachia, who doesn't have running water and trust the Lord, or those people in the inner city project developments who hear gunshots every night and have no hope of anything except the Lord, they are exceedingly rich because God is with them. This is why Jesus calls us to the orphan to the widow, and to those who are in prison. For their good, yes, but for our joy. Why? Because we receive joy when we see that God is with the people who have nothing because that's the kind of God He is. Which flows right into the last point. And that is this, that In light of this story, we can, on this side of the cross, realize this. That God ultimately prospers his people by giving them Christ. Jesus is all you need. Paul understands this. In Philippians which is not the text that I was primarily going to read. I'm still reading the text I was primarily going to read. But we're going to look at Philippians as well. Because, and, and you know what? You don't even have to turn there because everyone knows this text because we love to quote it. We love to quote, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. What we don't love is what comes right before it. Where, Christ, where Paul is saying, I'm in prison and I have nothing. And what I've learned is that whether I have everything or I have nothing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because there is no treasure this world has to offer that is better than Christ. He is my only need. 
And then beyond that, in every gospel, in every epistle, every epistle, you get some form of Paul saying this, and this is what I preach to you. This is the gospel that I come preaching to you. Christ, Christ alone. Him dead, him, him buried, him risen. Christ. In him is the fullness of joy. If you have Christ, you have no need for joy in anything else. And the needs that you have, the protection that you need, the presence that your soul longs for, are found right now in him and not yet, but soon to come in him. And to see that, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I'm just going to read to you, you know, we'll read through 14. I'm going to read to you the gospel preached to the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father, that's Yahweh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, or blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Amen. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, God does it first for God. God is zealous for his glory and he saves his people so that he will receive glory. And we are not only best suited and most joyful, we have most in our lives when God is most satisfied in us and God is most satisfied in us when we are most happy in Jesus Christ for his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved that's Jesus in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace and so here we go your first and primary need is spiritual And if you miss that, you miss the riches of the gospel because God in Christ Jesus has blessed those of us who are in him, who believe and have trusted into him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the beloved. That's not us. That's Christ Jesus. Now, we are beloved in him. But if you look in Ephesians 1, and that's actually verse 6, if you're trying to track along, that's a capital B beloved because he is the capital B beloved of God. We are beloved only because we are in Christ who is the beloved, which means no Christ, no blessings. She set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite us or to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. The meeting of our needs, blessings have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so as we've said before, we look to blessings now, but we hope for blessings later. So we trust that those who have died in the Lord, that they have the fullness of joy. Linda is experiencing more joy now than if she had lived, and we're here today. We trust that when the faithful not unfaithful, when the faithful believer in India breathes their last breath because they didn't have the medicine they needed for a preventable disease, or breathes their last breath because they starved to death, that they open their eyes to the fullness of joy and the riches of no hunger, no tears, no sickness in Christ Jesus. And so I can tell you for a fact, because I've seen them and I've talked to them, that if you talk to Christians in Haiti or if you talk to Christians in India, they will not say we are praying 
for it now. They are saying we are trusting that in sickness and in health and goodness and in, and in times of sorrow in hunger or in full in feast or fallow, my hope is in Christ Jesus because when I die, I will see him as he is. And every need of my heart, of my stomach, of my mind, of my body, of my spirit, of my soul will be met in Christ Jesus so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So check this, you are getting the presence of God now because the Holy Spirit is in you. You are getting the presence of God now because you are joining in. This is why we don't forsake the communion of the saints, the gathering of the body, because we are in the presence of Christ Jesus right now, but we will be in his presence unhindered forevermore. We have it already, but not yet. Which is why we sin. In the presence of Jesus, there's no sin, because We're not tempted by the fake beauty of health and wealth, prosperity, apart from Jesus. We are happy and excited and hopeful for the true beauty that is Jesus. So when you're in the presence of beauty, you don't sin. Why? You sin because you love it, because you want it. We're all made that I sin because sin is enticing and I love it. If sin was no fun and of no perceived benefit to me, I wouldn't do it. And so if we sin because we love it, then the only way to stop sinning, the only way to live faithful lives is to love Jesus more. You must love Jesus more. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So this is the final thing. When we pray, what we are praying for is Jesus. When we are rich, the riches aren't our joy, Jesus is. When we are poor, the poverty is not our burden, Jesus is our freedom. When we have good relationships, we are happy in them because we can extol the name of Jesus. And when they are bad, we trust that Christ redeems all things in his time. And whatever we do, we do it for his glory because that's why he does it. We want Jesus. That is what you're called to. Let's pray. Would you stand for the benediction? May God, our Father, and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of His Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, give you peace and be with you through this week. Amen.